0: from Utah Public Radio. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew Laplante. When humans describe sex, they often use adjectives that relate to a very thermal experience. We refer to people who we are attracted to as being hot, and when things start getting romantic, we often say they heat up. When Films depict sex, those scenes are steamy, and when the romance fades, we often say it goes cold. So, clearly, there's something about sex and heat that makes us equate more warmth with more desire. And at least some research and more than a few non-scientific surveys have suggested that humans in general tend to have more sex when it gets warmer, at least to a point. When it gets too hot, it appears that a lot of people just can't bring themselves to do much of anything, even all of that fun stuff. But here's the thing. Humans aren't at all unique. Hot and cold temperatures impact mating interactions and sexual selection all across the animal kingdom. And in a world that is warming, there's good reason to wonder how all of those impacts will affect the ecological balances that are predicated on certain levels of mating behaviors. Let's take a very classical ecological thought experiment here, an environment populated only by rabbits and wolves. When there are more rabbits, there's more prey for the wolves, and so more wolves survive up until the point that there's so many wolves that the rabbit population depletes. And when that happens, the wolves, well, they run out of food and more rabbits survive and up and down this relationship goes across time. But now let's say for the sake of argument that the rabbits get friskier when it gets hotter and the wolves work, well, they work in the other direction. When it gets too hot, they don't want to have sex at all. What happens then? Well, we're not really sure, not just because this is a theoretical experiment, but Because most of our understandings about ecological balances are based on mating behaviors that are known. But if climate change impacts those behaviors, a lot of what we think we know might go out the window. And that's why Noah Leith and his collaborators have spent a lot of time examining these relationships and have called for more research into what might happen as climates around the world change as a result of global warming. Leith is a Ph.D. candidate in the Fowler Finn Lab at St. Louis University, where he studies how environmental factors shape the evolution and ecology of animal reproduction, and he was the first author of a recent paper in the journal Ecology Letters on the evolutionary interactions between thermal ecology and sexual selection. Noah Leith, welcome. Hi, uh, thanks for
1: having me. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for that great introduction, too. (laughs)
0: Noah, I've got to admit, I feel like you guys missed a really big opportunity here in this paper. How tempted were you to use the words hot sex in the paper title?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I typically try to s- stray away from uh <laughs> doing fun, phrasy titles like that, um, just because I feel like uh, a title that doesn't use those things is a little more informative about what the actual results of the paper are showing. Um, but I do reserve some of the more fun titles for conference talks and posters and, uh, <laughs> talking to people about stuff like that. So
0: <laughs> do you have a favorite euphemism that, that refers to this paper?
1: I can't think of them, but you, I mean, you can't anger. think of them
0: or you can't say it
1: on the radio. <laughs> You covered most of them in your introduction. I think it's a little serendipitous that uh, we talk about mating and sex using uh, hot and cold and uh, temperature
0: related terms. I mentioned that humans are generally known to get a little more amorous when it's warm, but in the rest of the animal world, it's not just that rising or falling of temperatures that impacts libido. There's a lot of things that go into mating. Um, one of the examples that uh, you and your collaborators have offered is dragonfly coloration.
1: Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, so my collaborator, uh, Mike Moore, he's a professor at uh, University of Colorado Denver. A lot of his work is on dragonfly wing coloration. So in dragonflies, some species, males and females, will express these dark patches on their wings but the males use them to attract females. And also more often, I think they show them to other males and they uh, kind of mediate competitive interactions between males. Um, so if a male has a really dark wing pattern, other males might be less likely to like, engage in combat with him because he's gonna be more risky to engage in combat with because he's bigger and tougher.
0: So this is like a guy who like wears like a skull and crossbones t-shirt or something. He's like, I'm big and bad. Don't mess with me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And these patches are impacted by the thermal environment that the dragonfly exists in?
1: Yeah. So he's done, or Mike and some of his collaborators have done a project where they raise dragonflies at different temperatures. Um, And they actually found that, um, Raising a dragonfly at a warmer juvenile temperature causes them to produce more wing coloration, which is a little counterintuitive because when they have more wing coloration, they absorb a lot of heat from the sun. So that absorption of heat from the sun is more stressful to those dragonflies that have really dark color patterns.
0: And that's in some way we believe going to impact the way that so they're, they're going to compete with other males for mates, and then also that they're going to attract other mates. And then what happens from there is sort of anybody's guess, right?
1: Well, so uh, Mike had this really cool paper that came out in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and PNAS, where he found that Over recent years, these dragonflies that have wing coloration are evolving less coloration um, in response to climate warming, at least in males. So uh, one strategy to kind of compensate for for that increased heat stress in a warming climate is just to evolve less wing coloration. But at the same time, that kind of trades off with how are they going to attract and compete for mates if they don't have that wing coloration that they've depended on?
0: There's lots of other examples of these um i'm going to pick a couple of favorites uh from the paper and the discussions that have had been had around the paper maybe you can help fill these things in fiddler crabs can how how does temperature impact fiddler crabs
1: yeah so fiddler crabs are super fun just some background on fiddler crab mating systems males and females their claws are different between sexes. So in males they will have one claw that's like really really big and the other claw they use for feeding.
0: These are like the tennis players of the animal kingdom where they have one really huge arm and then the other's like this little mini arm.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they wave them around like tennis rackets basically. They stand outside of femo or they stand outside of burrows that females use to lay their eggs in. And they wave these claws around to ward off other males and to attract females and get them to come to their burrow. But when they're outside of the burrow, they are exposed to a lot of sunlight. Um, So they're exposed to more heat stress. So if they want to stay outside their burrow and spend a lot of time and effort attracting females, they're also going to expose themselves to more thermal stress. So there's that trade-off between how successful am I going to be with attracting a mate and how successful am I going to be at surviving the hot temperatures in this environment?
0: Another animal that I've, I always like to talk about, and this goes back to my youth uh, in California, elephant seals, which are these, If if you haven't seen an elephant seal, I mean, first of all, like if you've only seen one in a picture, you haven't really seen an elephant seal. Because when you get up close and personal to these things, they're just deserving every bit of the name. They're gargantuan creatures. You and your collaborators have noted that a very important sexually selected trait is impacted by heat as well in elephant seal populations.
1: Yes, so elephant seals are a cool system because they show some of the most extreme example of uh, sexual size dimorphism. So in elephant seals, males are very, very, very big, much larger than females. And they're big because when all the females aggregate on a beach, the bigger males are better at warding off those smaller males. And that way that big male gets access to mate with all of those females that are on a beach. But if you're really big, it takes a lot longer for you to dissipate the heat that you absorb from your environment. And when you're engaging in combat with other males, you're generating a lot of heat. Uh, So if you're really big, you might be more intimidating and you might be more likely to win those uh, combat interactions, but you're also, it's much harder for you to thermoregulate. And so one cool thing that researchers have found is that size dimorphism and that combat behavior has likely driven the evolution of physiological thermoregulation strategies where the elephant seals will push blood up to their skin surface because it helps push the heat off of their bodies. Um, But they only really push that blood up during combat. So it's this cool physiological adaptation to a weird mating
0: system dynamic. And so, so this is evolution in action, an evolution that could be stressed and forced and shifted in ways as the environment gets warmer. Yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. So in the context of sexual selection, animals can adapt to changes in their thermal environment By altering their sexual traits and also altering their physiological traits to compensate for those sexual traits.
0: You are a spider guy. I've long been fascinated by animals that will put their lives at risk to have sex. Um, There is, for instance, this amazing phenomenon where female spiders, some species of female spiders, will eat their mates after sex. your team has pointed out that animals will also pursue mates in this same sort of way, right? Like like pursue mates even to their deaths. And this includes in temperatures that aren't necessarily conducive to their survival. Can you unpack that for me?
1: Yeah. So um, survival is... I mean, we know it's really important for an individual's fitness. They have to survive in a habitat, but really they only have to survive until they have an opportunity to reproduce, because once you pass your genes to the next generation, you've already increased your fitness. So a lot of times, if opportunities to reproduce are rare, individuals will invest a lot of energy or a lot of their resources into reproducing that one time. Um, and if that means you die after reproducing that one time, then that's that's a cost they're willing to to take to
0: meet. And do we think that this is going to be something that will be stressed as climate impacts temperatures and other climate variables across the globe moving forward?
1: Yeah, I, I think animals will definitely have to balance survival and reproduction in different ways um, as climates are changing. It's hard to kind of generalize across all animals how they're going to balance survival versus reproduction. But we already know that sensitivity in reproduction to temperature can be more important than sensitivity of survival to temperature for where animals are found throughout the globe. Um, So there were some researchers that looked at the thermal limits for survival versus the thermal limits for reproduction in fruit flies. And then they also compared those limits to their geographic ranges. And they found that their geographic ranges more closely correspond to the temperatures they can tolerate during reproduction than they do to the temperatures they can tolerate
0: for survival. So like, like these fruit flies are, they won't last long, but they can, they can handle it in order to get some hot fruit fly sex going on. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm sure. <short>, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, if we want to have any hope of understanding how organisms are going to fare under changing climates, we really do need to have a better understanding of this part of the equation, right? I mean, mating is very clearly important to survival. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, and it's it's in, it's important for population persistence, right? If your population is going to persist, you need to be producing more offspring as older individuals die off. And these mating behaviors uh, and these traits that are involved in mating... They have a lot more direct effects on how many offspring are produced in a population uh, compared to survival, at least a lot of the times.
0: Now, we know that the Earth is warming. The predictive models that we have for what's going to happen in the future pretty much all agree that it's going to continue to warm. But this warming happens very unevenly across the planet. You know, we talk about 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius, but that doesn't happen all everywhere equally. And we're only just now developing models that offer a pretty decent idea of how those changes will occur when those changes occur at, at scales that are smaller than the planet herself or an entire continent or, you know, even an entire state. But animals live in these micro scales and especially the insects that you are particularly interested in studying. They live at these tiny micro scales where, as you've observed, like even, you know, two plants that are next to each other can have very different temperature uh, relationships with the insects, you know, just depending on how the plant grew or how the leaves are shaped that's a huge challenge for the sorts of investigations that you're talking about when we're talking about survival. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really important to understand the variation in temperature that animals experience at the scales that are relevant to them and in, in their lives uh, and how changes in climate will affect that temperature variation at that relevant scale. And so what we're finding with insects that live on plants is even within a single plant that they live on, they might experience as much variation in microclimates as they would experience in macroclimates across their entire geographic range. Um, So one insect that I've been studying are these uh, tree hoppers. So they're like little tiny cicadas that live on plants. And they're distributed from uh, Mexico to, to Canada. And the difference in mean uh, annual temperature between those two locations is as much of a difference in the microclimates that we see at one time, like in, at one point in time on one single plant uh, outside of our greenhouse. So yes, absolutely. Understanding the scale that they're actually interacting with their environment uh, is super important for understanding the, the temperatures that they're going to
0: experience. And we've talked a little bit about like the phenotypic characteristics of animals that uh, appear to uh, be driven by changes in temperature, but that's true for plants too, right? Like, so we you know, earlier I gave this example of, you know, rabbits and wolves, but we could talk about like a plant responding to heat stress by growing larger or smaller leaves. And then that changes that little microclimate that these little tree hoppers live on. It's a lot of chaos.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things about the research that I do is that I think we do our best to embrace how complex uh, life and ecological interactions are. Um, so, yes, in order to understand how treehoppers might respond to changes in climates, you need to understand how the plants that they live on are responding um, and how plants are shaping the environments that treehoppers experience. I also think this complexity manifests in the different traits that might respond to one environmental change within uh, one organism. So. I mean, we talked about it with survival versus reproduction. Um, Are they going to alter their sexual traits or are they going to alter some other physiological trait to compensate for sexual traits? One cool thing with the spiders that I work with is they use multiple sexual traits to attract females. Um, They have these dark ornaments, these big tufts of hair on their front legs, and they also wave those ornaments around. in a courtship dance while they're singing, they're vibrating, to, uh, and it's all coordinated uh, with those ornaments in those courtship dances. And we know that each of those traits responds in different ways to changes in temperature. Um, so we're, we're trying to figure out, this work is ongoing, but we're trying to figure out how they coordinate The dances and the songs and the ornaments that they're using to attract females across thermal variation when we know that those traits respond in different
0: ways to temperature. So each of these individual traits on a single organism could respond in the same direction or in different directions from the others when it comes to mating behavior and success?
1: Yes, absolutely. And um, that poses kind of a challenge for individuals because a lot of these traits, in order, to, in order for a female to assess, to get information from one of a male's traits, they have to also put it in the context of other traits. So one way to think about this is if you are watching somebody dance and there's no music playing, it might look really weird uh, and like uncomfortable to watch them dance in silence, um and really, you can't appreciate that dance without the music that it corresponds to, and so the exact same thing might be happening here if they if something is off between the music and the dance, uh, it might totally disrupt that mating interaction
0: so these are these are the male spiders that do this dance and the vibration and the coloration, so the female spiders are like, "Yeah, man, no, yeah.
1: Yeah, maybe sometimes it's yeah, man, no. And sometimes it's yeah, man,
0: I'm going to eat you. (laughs) I'm going to add a little more chaos into this picture because global warming doesn't just impact temperature. It impacts precipitation too. The ability to find water and the moisture of an environment is obviously very influential to animal mating behaviors. Have we even scratched the surface on that part of the question?
1: there's there's a handful of, of studies that have explored how water availability or precipitation affect the traits that animals use to attract mates and also how choosy individuals are when they're choosing among different mates but really I mean we're just starting to scratch the surface we we really haven't spent as much time on precipitation as we have on uh, temperature in the field of sexual selection um, so one thing I'm doing is I'm I'm trying to see how both of those types of climate variation not only uh, act on their own but also interact to affect how traits are expressed and and how individuals choose mates. Um, so, like maybe being in a really hot environment is okay if you have a lot of water in the environment and you can sweat it out and you can tolerate it. Um, But if it's really hot and it's really dry and you need water to thermoregulate, then a hot environment is going to be especially stressful. So looking at those interactions between the two is
0: also really important. And then, of course, you know, climate change doesn't just impact temperatures and precipitation. There's atmospheric pressure, there's humidity and wind, ocean currents, lightning, cloud properties. I could go on and on with all of these different essential climate variables. When you think about all of these different potential impacts, does it ever feel to you like there are just so many variables that the chaos is too thick for ecologists to see through and, and make good predictions about? Or I I guess the other way of looking at that is, man, endless questions, endless possibilities. Would, do, you, do you get frustrated with the questions or do you get really excited by them?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. Um, There's definitely times where I really want to go hard on the complexity, and it makes it impossible to design a good experiment um, and also explore variation on all those different axes of uh, environmental factors. But at the same time, I think one way to kind of tackle that challenge is to combine experiments in the laboratory with observing changes in phenotypes and, and changes in populations in the wild um, so in the wilds we're not manipulating temperature or precipitation we're just kind of letting all of those complex variables do their thing and we can see how populations are responding um, to variables that we think are important and in the, in the laboratory we can kind of reconcile that complexity by Manipulating each environmental factor one at a time and assessing okay which one is which one do we think is the most important um for this species or for this process, and what's the mechanism that's really driving those patterns that we see in the field? Hmm.
0: okay, Noah, here's the most salaciously suggestive question I'm gonna to ask today for you personally, hotter temperatures or colder temperatures <laughs> for me personally, colder temperatures. <laughs> That's Noah Leith. He's a PhD candidate at St. Louis University where he studies how environmental factors shape the evolution and ecology of animal reproduction. And he was the first author of a recent paper in the journal Ecology Letters on the evolutionary interactions between thermal ecology and sexual selection. Noah Leith, thank you. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.